Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. This is Mother's Day, and we are going to celebrate, talk about mothers. Amen. For those of you that, that still have your moms around, take advantage of the time, because sometimes you don't know. And it's like everything else, you really don't miss them until they're no longer there. I think that's, the, that's just a rule of, of life. But what I want to look at this morning are, there are um, six principles of motherhood that I want to look at. And really, when you get down to it, these, are, th- these principles will work for fathers. They'll, work, they'll really work in any relationship. It's applicable to any of them. But the, f- the first one, or what a, who I want to center in on as an example of living these principles is Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel. So if, if you would, go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're, we're talking about Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And the first principle that we want to look at is the principle of position. Let's start in verse 1. It says, Now there was a certain man, and I'm, I'm he- really heading to um, verse 11, but I want to give the background, so we're going to read through these first 10 verses uh, very quickly. It says, Now there was a certain man in um, Ramathan, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Now, let me just make a little comment here. If, you've, if you don't like your name, just go read that, that first verse and think, at least I wasn't named Zuf. Okay, verse 2. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the other was Peniah. Peniah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, and the priests of the Lord were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she, meaning Hannah, wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Elkanah sounds pretty much like every husband I've ever met. Your wife cries, you don't know why, but you think, there's got, you know, am I chopped liver? Why are, why, are you, why are you crying over what you don't have when you've got me? And I'm such a prize. Verse 9, 
So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. So they had gone, they'd made sacrifice, they'd had a family feast at Shiloh, given a portion to the priest, to Eli and to his sons. And after this feast, everybody else, they feasted, they've gone back to their tents. But Hannah staying at the tabernacle. Verse 10 says, And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Now, first thing I want us to notice out of, out of verse 11 is when she addressed God, she addressed God as the Lord of hosts. It does no uh, um, um, damage or no um, misquoting to the Hebrew text to translate Lord of hosts to because it's Yahweh, it's Lord, and hosts, literally, the root word of that means war. So, in Yahweh means, I am that I am that I am. So you could very easily trans this, I am war. That's who Hannah is looking to. She recognized that this curse, even though here in Scripture, and Elkanah and everybody else is saying, Hannah's cursed by God because she can't have children. Hannah looks to God and says, God, this is not, my problem is not with you. My problem is I have an enemy. And I'm looking to the God of war to deal with my enemy, and my enemy is barrenness. Ultimately, my enemy is Satan. But my enemy right now is barrenness, not you, God. She's, notice what she's not doing. She's not crying out, Oh, God, why have you made me barren? Because if God's made her barren, how are you going to change God's mind? She recognizes that the enemy is not him, but he is the answer to her enemy. Now, <clears throat> she also realizes that she's in a relationship that is higher than that of her marriage. She is elkanized thinking, hey, look, you've got me. Am I not better than ten sons? I've got Penny. She's given me, he's, she's given me plenty of children, but I'm giving you a double portion of everything because you're my favorite. That's what it means when it says he loved her. It means he loved her more than, than his other wife. But she's looking at it and she's saying, yes, you are a good husband, you provide for me, you provide well for me, but i got a higher relationship that I'm looking to to get um, this problem, my barrenness, fixed. But notice how she refers to it. She refers to God as the Lord of war, but then three times. Remember, God doesn't stutter. So when there are repetitions, especially the closer they are, there's repetitions there for emphasis. And three times in the next couple of sentences, your maidservant, your maidservant, your maidservant. She says, you are the God of war, you are my God, but I am your servant. I am your slave. In, in a relationship between a master and a slave, the master has responsibility to care for his slaves or to care for his servants. 
And I know as, as the church, some of us, you know, we, we seem to, people seem to go through this stage at times where I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a slave, I'm a son, I'm a daughter of God. Well, yes, you are. That is a true statement. That does not mean that you can't be a slave also. A slave is not a position that you need to avoid. And here's my proof. And don't try to follow all these because I'm going to go through them fast. Paul, first, or Romans 1.1. Paul, a bondservant. The Greek word there is doulos. It is the lowest of the lowest of slaves. If you were the doulos in a household with multiple slaves, you were the guy that stood at the door and washed the people's feet. That was the lowest job there was in a Roman household or a Jewish household. And notice that's the job Jesus picked out to do with his disciples. Paul says, I am a bondservant or a doulos of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.10, Paul again says, Do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men... I would not be a bondservant, a doulos of Christ. In 2 Timothy 2.24, he says, And a servant of the Lord, a doulos of the Lord, must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach and patience. He's instructing his, his protege, Timothy, you need to be a servant of the Lord. You need to be this lowest slave. And to Titus, he, when he's introducing Titus 1.1, Paul, again, a bondservant, a doulos of God. In fact, he mentions that both in, in Romans 1.1 and in Titus 1.1. He mentions that he's a slave of God before he mentions that he's an apostle of God. Order counts. Paul's saying... My position as a servant of God is more important than my position as an apostle of God to the church. Why? God, you're my master. I am your son. But this doulos, in, in, especially in the Jewish culture, you had people that would in, in temporarily enslave themselves. They would become bondservants. And at, um, either when their debt was paid off, because you could do that for a period of years. It's like going into debt. Or even if your debt wasn't paid off at the year of Jubilee, that's, that, that uh, event is done. But if, if you have a wife and children, they have to stay there. There were a lot of Jewish men that would go, and to signify that, they would go to a doorpost and they would take their earlobe and lay it on a doorpost, and the master of the house would take a nail and a hammer and drive a nail through their earlobe. And that was a sign that I'm a slave of this household voluntarily. You didn't subject me to it. I volunteered to serve this house. That's what God's called, that's what Paul says he's called us to do. Timothy says the same thing, in, um, or of Timothy in Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, both of them, bondservants of Jesus Christ. James says the same thing, James 1.1. James, a bondservant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says the same thing of himself, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Peter, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude says the same thing. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. All of those men, and that's a, you know, that's a pretty good group to be named with. Paul, Timothy, James, Peter, Jude, they all say, I am a slave of God. 
That's what Hannah's doing. She's saying, your boss, I'm not. You're the Lord of war. I've got a problem. It's called barrenness, and you need to take care of me. And what was God's response? Well, we're going to see. So the first principle is that of position. You have to get your position straight. You are my God. Remember, we read in our, our prayer time, Deuteronomy 28, Every sickness and every disease, all other curses, we just read the one about sickness and disease because that's what we were praying over, is under that curse of the law. Yet Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that we've been redeemed from that curse, the curse of the law, because Jesus became a curse for us. So all of those things, those punishments in the Old Testament for disobeying the law, which we have all done, we are redeemed from those. If God is your God... If he's not your God, guess what? You're going to receive every one of those curses, whether you receive them here or receive them later on after death and receive them in hell for all eternity. Those curses await you. There's only one way out of them, and that's by becoming joined with Jesus by becoming a Christian. But then there's also the second part where we have to acknowledge he's boss and I'm not. That one's not always easy to do. I've had bosses before that really weren't my bosses. They would be my bosses up to a point, and then I just went my own way. Now, I'll be honest with you, the last teaching job I had, I was 20 years into a 25-year career, and I had, um, in my mind, teenagers. Um, they were not teenagers, they were mid-20s. Been out of college for two or three years, working on their master's degree, and they're coming in and telling me how to run my classroom. And I had no choice but to listen to them because positionally, authoritatively, they were over me. So I said, yes, ma'am. Did what they said to do. When they walked out the door, I did what I knew would work. And I was cantankerous enough, and I was needed enough. I was at that fortunate position in my career where uh, at the school I was, it took like two people to cover my positions because I was the utility infielder in the science world. And I know there were times when they really wanted to get rid of me. They just couldn't afford to get rid of me. But, and I'm not saying that that was right. I'm just saying we have to understand that it's one thing to say Jesus is Lord. It's another thing to live Jesus as Lord. I could get away with that at my job because I was too valuable to fire. <laughs> Believe me. Jesus could fire me in a heartbeat if he wanted to. And it's not that he's looking to fire me, but if, if, he, if he, as my Lord, says this is the way you need to live, this is where you need to go to do your, your chore and your um, um, task for the hour, and I decide to do it another way, then he's going to pour the blessing out where he's called me to go, and if I don't go there, I'm going to be over here wondering where my blessing is, and... God's pouring it out. I'm just not there. It's like me, me telling Jerry, Jerry, it's your birthday. I just put $20,000 in um, the bank down here for you. And it's the first bank of, um, they'll take anything, they'll take you know rubber checks. But Jerry decides to go to the first bank of real money. Well, there's, there's, I didn't put my check there. He can go there and ask for money all he wants. The money I gave him is at a different bank. 
We need, when we say Jesus is Lord, we have to go where He says go if we want to be blessed because that's where He puts our blessing. We can go our own way. He'll allow it. But you won't walk in blessings. Now, the second principle that we see in Hannah is the principle of priority. And for Hannah, um, um, Hannah's has to put Samuel as a higher priority than her own life. Because one of the things that Hannah is going to do is Hannah is going to vow to the Lord that if you give him to me, I will give him back to you when he was weaned. Now, weaned doesn't just mean in this case that, that, that he was, as soon as he's finished breastfeeding, he's done. Because Samuel, or not Samuel, but Eli doesn't want a toddler that Eli has to take care of. So being weaned means he was in a position where he could go to work. Because when he went to Eli, he went to work in the ministry. So it's, don't just think he was like a, you know, a three or a four-year-old. He was a little older than that. There's a little, this is a little figurative speech here. But here's my, my point. Children are a higher priority to a mother than the mother is. And I put in the bulletin the, the, the little funny statement today. That one of the, you know, the greatest wish of, of every mother with young children is I want to be able to have a hot meal sitting down. There were, there were years that went by that my wife never had a hot meal. And it wasn't, because, it wasn't because I said, I didn't say, Gina, come sit down and eat. Because I would say it, but she's off doing things for the two kids. I'm a typical dad. They're big enough to hold a fork. They're big enough to do for themselves. If they want it, let them get their little butts out of the chair and go get it, and you sit down and eat. But as a mama, she was off dealing with it, and she'd come and sit down, and this was prior to microwaves, and she'd just eat cold food. And I don't know how many mothers that do that. Why? Because the kids are a higher priority. I know, and I'll, I'll brag on my wife, but it's, it's the truth. You give her $50, say, honey, go buy yourself something. Go, what do you want? Go buy clothes. Go buy this. Go buy that. She'll say, okay, and she'll go with every intention. I'm going to go buy a dress. I'm going to go buy some shoes. I'm going to go to the spa and get my fingers and my toenails done, my hair done. Well, I've spent more than $50 to do that. But, <laughs> but back in the day, you might not have to. And three hours later, she'd come back in the, in the house and she'd have 900 bags with her and I'd say, what you got? Oh, let me show you. She'd be all excited. She'd been shopping. She'd pull out pants for Ryan, a new outfit for Tiffany, something for me. And I'd say, well, what'd you buy you? Well, I stopped and got an ice cream cone. And you just want to grab your head and just say, did you not hear what I said? But when she got there, she wasn't thinking of anybody, her, especially herself. She was only thinking of kids and me. That's the, the, the attitude that uh, mothers and most parents should have. And it, it contrasts very plainly or very uh, uh, starkly with today's attitude in the world. Psalm 127, verse 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. 
Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of, of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. God says right there, children are a heritage, they're a reward. And you're happy if you have a quiver full. It takes more than two or three to fill a quiver. I know Alan Moulton, good friend of ours. I forget, eight, nine, eight. People will joke with Alan. Brother, don't you know what causes that? And they're joking, but I'm telling you, Alan don't take it as a joke. He takes it as an insult. It makes him mad. Now, he, you know, Alan's big enough to break most people in half, and rarely does he show that. But his mindset is, the more the merrier. And in fact, if it, if, if it hadn't got to the point where every time Tiffany got pregnant, she really ran into difficult pregnancies and difficult labors and nearly died with the last one, they probably would have 10 or 12 because she has the same mind. The more the merrier. I had two and said, I can't handle anymore. I'm a wimp. But part of it is the, the, the world's mindset is that children will make a rich man poor. Where the Bible's attitude, children will make a poor man rich. That ought to be our attitude. Children are something to be embraced and celebrated. Psalm 128, verse 3 and 4. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Notice what, what, what the psalmist says here. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. There's fruit to be picked off a fruitful vine. Your wife is designed to provide things for your family. And you ought to look at her as a blessing. Your children are like olive plants. It's like you have a garden. You don't even have to walk outside. It's right there. If you remember, I forget, it was one of the Back to Future movies. One, the one set in the future way out, way, way out, like 2015 in the future. And, and when they sat down at the table, the kids started yelling for fruit. And the computer that ran the household lowered the little thing down on, at the center of the table. And it had all these fruit it was like grapevines and stuff growing out and he just had to pick the fruit off the vine right there at the table that's what the psalmist is talking about your wife and your kids are like having fruiting plants right there you don't even have to go work and pick them i loved to garden when i was growing up until it came time to go hoe it then i didn't like it but man when it was harvest time and you got to go down and get those, those tomatoes off that vine that they looked like watermelons. And, you know, you picking beans and corn and every kind of fresh vegetable. It's like, man, this is great. But you still had to walk a quarter of a mile down to the garden. And on our farm, we had, our garden was nearly as big as this sanctuary. It was big. That's a lot to hoe and a lot to maintain. And dad didn't do that. Us boys got to do that. So you didn't like it when it was time to work, but man, at harvest time, you really enjoyed it. We've got that all of the time, if we have a wife 
and children. Now, other examples that, that of people that prayed for their children had their priorities straight. Their children were their top priority. Sarah prayed Isaac in, just like Hannah did. Rachel prayed for Joseph. Ruth was barren. She was a Moabitess, came back, and, and, and um, she was married, had Obed, who was the grandfather of David. She's in the lineage of Jesus. Wow, that, now that, that's some prayers. Elizabeth, same way. She was barren, and she prayed, and God brought her a child who became the forerunner of Jesus. Now, the question always comes up, and, and this is one of the, the, the things you, that you have to use a balancing act when it comes to Mother's Day. You want to preach and, and honor mothers, but at the same time, what do you do that somebody that wanted to be a mother but couldn't have children, and they are childless? Well, if you're childless, and it doesn't even matter if you're a man or a woman, if, you're, if you don't have children and you want to have children, then adopt some. And either, I'm talking about either formally or informally. Well, I can't, I can't adopt anymore. I'm too old. I can't, hand, I can't go back and raise them anymore. Well, then pick a family. Bless them. You walk up to a family of, of, of you know, it's got three or four kids, hand them a $100 bill and say, here. You hire a babysitter, go out, get a meal, and have some fun. Or at Christmas time, adopt a family. Go every, every mall, there are all kinds of adopt families. Just go buy a bunch of presents, spend a bunch of money, and give it to people. You can adopt children even if they're not yours. Even without giving them your name, you can bless people. Find somebody that needs a blessing and bless them and continue to bless them. I'll tell you a great ministry, and it's one that they're, they, they need more people to do it. Most of these hospitals downtown or anywhere, if they have a neonatal unit, they love to have people that will come in and get trained. Now, you have to gown up, glove up, mask up, but you go in and get these little preemies, and you just sit on by in a rocking chair, and you can hold them and talk to them and pray over them, give them some human contact, just adopt a child like that. There are plenty of ways. There are programs at every grade school for, for uh, tutoring. Well, I don't know enough to tutor. Grab a three-year-old. I guarantee you, you can help a three-year-old. For one thing, probably the history they're studying, you live through it. And they don't go very far back with three-year-olds. But there are a lot of ways, if you're childless, to become a parent. But the point is, where is my priority? Am I willing to give something up? Because having children will always, you, it, it, all of life is about trade-offs. You know, it, there are no free lunches, but I have to decide, do I want this or do I want that? I, I probably can't have both. So which is more important? Well, Hannah had her priorities in line. Now let's go back to 1 Samuel verse 11. And let's look at the, 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 the um, third principle, the principle of purpose. Verse 11, 1 Samuel 1, Then she made a vow and said, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, not forget your maidservant, 
but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. She had a purpose for the child. It wasn't just, God, I want this other wife off my back. Give me a kid so I can shut her up. It's like, no, Lord, I want a child so that I can dedicate him and raise him up and watch him follow you. And I will give him back to you. And not only will I give him back to you, but I pledge right now in his behalf that he will take a Nazarite vow. A, a, a Nazarite vow was from Numbers 6-5, and it's the very first phrase when you're talking about it. It says, all the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall touch or shall come upon his head. It's a vow of separation. It's a vow of consecration. It's a vow that says, I am going to separate from the world and be different. We look at that. Samson took a, a Nazarite vow. He didn't separate very well. He wanted to have his vow, and he wanted to go beat on the Philistines when they really made him mad. But then he also wanted to go play with the Philistine girls because they were better looking than the Jewish girls. And they liked to play around where the Jewish girls didn't. So he ended up with Delilah, and it cost him his anointing because he wouldn't stay separated. But fortunately for Samson, God didn't forget him either. When his hair regrew, when he, and that, that is, is a, a type of or a sign that he separated himself. Now it took being blinded and being thrown in prison and being treated as a beast of burden to get it across to his head that I need to separate from the world. Sometimes bad things happen not because God's bringing them on us, but because we refuse to be separate and we reap the fruit of that. And when we reap the fruit of that, you know, I used to have people tell me, you know, when, when you'd get sick, well, you know, sometimes God's got to put you on your back so you look up. Well, putting people on their back with sicknesses is part of the curse of the law. God doesn't put you on your back so you'll look up. But I do guarantee you one thing. When you get on your back, you will look up. When you get desperate enough, you will look up. God will not bring the circumstances to make you desperate with the exception of the prayer that I, I mentioned earlier. When you start praying, Lord, there's anything in my life that's displeasing to you. There's anything in my personality that's displeasing to you. Anything I need to change, you crush it out of me. You be like we talked about last week. You, you, you crush those grapes and put them in that, that, that flask so that you, I can begin to ferment and be changed. Well, the only way you can take grape juice to wine is to put it in that leather flask and let it ferment. But first of all, you've got to crush the grapes. Well, if I'm willing to have my grapes crushed, but I'm willing to God come in and take the things that are not according to His will in my life. And I guarantee you, I don't care how hard you work to live your life according to His will, you're going to have areas that just don't line up. Because we're still not redeemed. And there are areas where we still need to change. When that happens, then we will be separated. When you take that Nazarite vow, and for Samuel, that's what, that's what his mother pledged him to, you will look different from the world. The, the, <coughs> the separation 
This separation is a process, really the process of sanctification. It's you not only separate from the influences of the world, but you will separate unto the influences of the Holy Spirit. Because for a lot of Christians, it's like, well, I'm going to pull away from the world. I'm not going to go drinking. I'm not going to go smoking. I'm not going to go carousing. I'm not going to have wild parties. I'm going to do, I'm going to lead a holy life. Well, that ain't enough. Those, that's a good thing. You need to separate from the world. But you also, when you separate from the world, you need to separate yourself into and unto the influence of the Spirit of God. Then He can start changing you. One without the other is just, well, I'm not sure that you really can separate from the world without separating into Jesus. At least, not for any period of time. Amen? But when you do, you will look different. I got a, a little card a couple of weeks ago from um, Youth for Christ. They use our, our lobby every Thursday night. Uh, well, they're taking a break now for the summer. But they have a program of mentoring for teenage mothers. And they have all the way from 13 to 19. And they have these mothers, most of them are unwed, they have children and they need help. So they have older women, godly women come in, pair up with these girls to give them advice, to help them, to supply them with formula, things they need. But this is one of the things when this one girl came and got involved with that program, this was part of her statement and I've changed it a little bit. I've condensed it, but this is the, really the essence of it. She said to these people when she started this program, she said, having a baby makes me excited because I finally have a person that cannot leave me. Being a mom finally gives me a purpose. Well, that's not a bad purpose. Being a good parent, whether you're a man or a woman, husband, you know, mother or father, is a good purpose, but it's a secondary purpose. For one thing, our goal as a parent, as a mother, should be to raise children that will leave our house and not escape our house. And there is a difference. It, and, it, and it is hard. One of the things when I taught high school, one of the things that I saw a lot of times, people had never disciplined their children. Four and five, they would act out and everybody would laugh and say that was cute. And they were just being precocious. And I'm thinking, no, they need a good smack. That's all they need. They need to be corrected. And then when they got to be 12 and 13, they were doing the same behaviors, and suddenly it wasn't cute anymore. Suddenly they, and suddenly at that age, the parents came in and they tried to exert tight control and get that out of their children too late. Could not do it. When your kids hit high school age, 13, 14, 15, that's the time to start letting go. You start transferring authority and power and decision, make, decision making over to your children so that ultimately when they hit 18, 19 and it's time for them to step out, they have full autonomy and they know how to deal with it. If you, if you just hem them in and hem them in and don't let them make decisions, when they get the time for them to walk out, they're not going to know how to make a decision. It's a little different, different uh, situation 
but it is, it is applicable. Just look at any professional sports team. You take a, 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 an 18, 19-year-old kid, leaves college early, goes to the NBA, gets this big signing bonus, and they go from being dirt poor to multimillionaires overnight. Most of them, most of those people, at the end of their, their professional career, whether it's two years or 15 years, great, well, let's not say most of them, a great number of them either broke or hugely in debt because they had no idea how to deal with the money. They thought this gravy train will never end. Well, a lot of our kids, they walk out of the house and we haven't prepared them. And suddenly, life hits them. Life, life is not, it, it is a very effective teacher, but it's not a very gentle teacher. And when it comes and hits you square in the face, if you don't know how to handle it, you make bad decisions. And then when they start making bad decisions, then we start griping at them. What is your problem? Are you stupid? That's when you need to start praying for them. And even if you have not prepared them completely, you can at least try to be a little bit of an influence. But it, then it's through advice, not commands. God called Abraham because he would command his children. But those were very young children, not teenagers and young adults. When they are out of your house, quit commanding them. They're not going to listen. And it will put a rift between you and you won't have a voice. They will walk away. Now, one of the things that, in fact, John says this, 3 John 1, 4. This is John's testimony. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. No parent is ever prouder than, than to know that their kids are being successful at life. I brag on my kids more than I've ever bragged on myself. Now, I just, I'll brag on them. It's easy because my kids, they're not perfect. They've made some mistakes. But by and large, late 30s, early 40s, they're doing pretty well. They're married. They have stable families. Now, that doesn't mean that if, if you have children and they've, they don't have stability. You can be a perfect parent and have screwed up kids. Adam and Eve are proof. God made no mistakes raising them. And they both rebelled. So it's, you are not as a parent, let me make that clear, you're not responsible for everything your kids do. But we need to do our best to set a good background for them. One of the ways to do it, Ephesians 3, and I'm, for time's sake, I'm not going to go through it. But we can go through and pray that for your children. Particularly verse 14 through 21, that's one of Paul's prayers. Sometimes when, when we pray, and we literally are called, even though my son's 41, my daughter's 39, I think, um, they're adults, I don't. I speak into their lives, but I speak into their lives with permission. But I don't ask permission to pray for them. I pray for them constantly. I pray for them all the time. Sometimes, James 4.3, you ask and don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasure. Sometimes our prayers for our kids, we need to be careful that we're not praying for our kids so that our kids look good so that we look good. 
What I desire out of my kids is that, that they're, they have a successful godly life. And to be honest with you, more godly than successful, although it's hard to have a godly life and not have a successful life. And part of that depends on where's your measuring stick. Amen? But also remember that when you are praying for your kids, you need to pray in faith, which means you need to quit looking at their circumstances and how they're behaving at the moment and start declaring how they're going to behave because God's at work within them. And the more you see to the contrary, the harder you need to pray and the harder you need to declare. And when you do talk to them, don't correct them, don't criticize them. Just, if anything, tell them what my mama used to tell me. Robert's boys don't act like that. And I've said it before. When she'd say that, I'd look at her and think, wow, mom, you're old, you're, you're getting senile. Of course we act this way. I was too young to realize she was speaking truth into me. This is not who you are, son. Amen? We also, the, 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 I think it's the fourth one, um, we have to have the principle of persistence. Verse 12 of 1 Samuel 1. It says, as it, And it happened as she continued praying. You can't, one prayer for your kids is not going to make it. Same way one prayer for yourself is not going to make it. You got to pray continually for yourself because you continually get off. Paul, or uh, yeah, Paul said in Ephesians that we should be continually filled with the Spirit. Well, wait a minute, I was filled with the Spirit back in nineteen so and so. Yeah, but your vessel leaks, and if that's the last filling you had, you're empty now. I guarantee you, your bucket's got holes in it. So you need to constantly be filling it and filling it and filling it and refilling it. And you need to constantly and persistently continue to pray for your children. Isaiah 40 verse 31. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word there for wait is the, the, Greek or the Hebrew word kava. It means to eagerly look for something. It's not just sitting down and, all right, I'm waiting on you, Lord. When you move, I'll move. Most of us, that's, you're just going to be sitting there a long time. No, the word there means I'm eagerly looking for something. It's very akin to the, the word hope in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. If you have no hope, you have nothing to put your faith on. You've got to have something unseen that you believe you're going to see. It's what Paul said in Romans, that, that God is a God who, who speaks um, matter out of nothingness. How He created the, un the universe. He spoke it into existence. The universe did not exist except in the mind of God. And God said, let it be, and it was. That's the same thing we do. We have to eagerly look for something. When we do that, if we need to fly, He'll give us wings. You need to run, you won't get weary when you run. If you just need to walk, you won't faint. He'll provide whatever you need. Psalm 37, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. This one, I love it. The word there for wait, literally it's the word... Um, and my Hebrew is even worse than my Greek. Chil. 
You kind of kind of act like you're hacking up something. Huel. Literally, it means to whirl, to dance, and to wait longingly. You want to know when I see this? I see this in a kid Beck's age. You pull Beck down here and, and have his parents. If I tell him he, he's had enough dealings with me, he'd say, yeah, I've heard you tell me things before. But you have his parents tell him, Beck, after church is over, we're going to Dairy Queen or whatever his favorite ice cream place is. And you can get whatever you want. It's on you, buddy. I guarantee you, that little boy, it's going to be like a, you turned a motor on in that little boy. His legs are going to start dancing. He's going to get anxious. He's just, he can't stand still. What's he doing? He's whirling about dancing because he's expecting something's coming. I got the word. I, Mom and Dad said we're going. That's what it means to rest and wait on the Lord. Don't fret because of him who prospers in his way. Don't look at the world and say, man, these guys that are doing it the world's way are getting all the money and I'm sitting here getting nothing. No, because of the man... Because we're, we're following God, He will bring it in its due season. But He will prosper us. It's His Word. And if you can count on your mom and dad's Word, and let me put this a little aside, it's one of the reasons you need to be careful about promising your kids things that you can't deliver on. In particular, when I get you home, we're going to deal with this. Well, buddy, when you get home, you better deal with it. Or you just spoke a threat and you're not going to bring it to, to pass. You speak a blessing on them, you better make sure you follow through the blessing. You give them a promise of discipline, you better fulfill the discipline. You need to back up your words. Be careful what you say to your kids. Love on them all times. Encourage them at all times. Tell them you're proud of them at all times. And if they've done something that you can't be proud of, then reach back in your memory banks and find something. Bring them out. Tell them, even if it's at the, at the, if they're at the bottom of the barrel, let's do a hypothetical. Your child has just committed murder. They're in jail. Then go visit them and say, look, you're not without hope. You're going to pay a terrible price for what you did, but God can still meet you in here. He can still redeem you out of this. And I'm praying for you, and, and life may have some problems. You're going to have some fruit that's not going to be good. It's not going to be fun. But son, daughter, I believe in you. I believe in you. You're, this, is, this is not the last word. I know of murderers who are free men today. Because they got saved. They didn't get the jailhouse conversion. They got saved and people. it became evident to people and finally a judge or a governor or somebody saw it and said, we're going to take a chance on you and we're commuting your sentence. And they're out working in the ministry today. Some of them, they started with a commutation. They ended up with a full pardon because they, they had invitations to go all over the country and some of them all over the world. They couldn't go. And finally, the governor, one governor says, I commuted your sentence, and the other one says, look, we need this guy to travel more. Well, then I'll just pardon him. Because I've got 10, 15 years, 20 years of, of excellent life that made up. doesn't make up for the crime, but it shows you're dealing with a different person. Amen? Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord. It's the, the, the first one, Kava. Look eagerly. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. 
Wait, I say, on the Lord. You're going to have to have some hope for your kids when you're praying for them. And the, the, the fifth principle, I think, I've kind of lost count here, is the principle of persuasion. And this goes back to, we're going to jump ahead a little bit, 1 Samuel chapter 1, but, but let's read verse 21 and 22. It says, Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. She would not go back to Shiloh to worship with her family until she could take Samuel and give him into the ministry. But notice in verse 28, it says, Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord, speaking of Samuel, As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord, so they worship the Lord there. Not just Hannah worshiping the Lord. Samuel is right there with her, worshiping God with Hannah. She was able to take all of these principles and finally persuade Samuel, this is your calling. Now I'll give you a personal testimony and I'll close with this. My mom died... 55, I think, if I remember right, 54 maybe. I was in my late 20s. I had been running from the Lord, and that was probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, was her death. Soon after that, I've had the, had the experience, and I've shared it, where I was, at the, I was at the bottom of the barrel. I was ready to end my life, and God invaded my room and, and dealt with me, and my life turned around that day, that night. I mean, it was like the light came on. And I started doing things right, and I met Gina, and, and she just she was very plain. You want to have a relationship with me? I only have a relationship with Christians. So being the, you know, the great man of honor, I figured, well, I'd go to church. I can fool anybody. I grew up in church. Well, I played on that bank till I fell in. I, I went to a church that loved me into the, back into the kingdom. And after we had been married a while, I'd, I'd, I was getting into the Word, I, I just I fell in love with the Bible, and I learned things that I had never learned as a kid, even though I was in church three times a week, four times a week, all my life. I learned things I never knew. And finally, I told her, I said, God's called me to go into the ministry. Being the great you know, woman of faith she was, she looked me right square in the eyes and said, you better go back and pray some more. And I did, and my first prayer was, God, if this is, if this is what you want, you're going to have to convince her because I'm not, I'm not sacrificing my marriage for a ministry. Not going to happen. That those two are not equivalent. She came back and said, yes, that's God, I'll follow you. I went to talk to my dad. Let him know. And his response floored me. He said, well, it's about time. He said, your mama prayed every day from the day my older brother Dennis was four, well, 59 to 51, two and a half years older than me. She said, from the day that Dennis was born to the day your little brother Scott was born, she prayed every day, God, you call one of my sons to the ministry. You call one of my sons to the ministry. I'm giving them to you. All three of them if you want to, but at least one. No one had ever said that to me till I went to him. And, I, and I'm not, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not blaming my parents. My rebellion was my rebellion, not my parents' fault. 
But I look back and I think, would it have made a difference if my mother had taken me and said, John, I pray every day that you will follow God's call on your life. Whether you're in a pulpit ministry or ministry of helps doing whatever, I pray that God will, you will stay true to His Word. And when she prayed that, if I had been aware of that and known that and that had been communicated to me, it may have been more like with Samuel, where they worship together. And this is my point. We need to do all of these things with our children, fathers and mothers. But we also need to communicate with them that we believe in them and we believe in the God in them. And if they're not saved, we believe that God's going to get in them and encourage them and, and show them that, that you are behind them. I know what it's, it's like to live a life where you, you just know. My parents are not well, they're not pleased with me and they're not proud of me right now. Now, my parents never voiced that to me, but I knew what they stood for. And I knew my lifestyle didn't match up with what they wanted for me. And so I, I didn't flaunt it at them, but I knew it wasn't right. And they, their door was always open. They always loved on me. But sometimes we need to not just love on people. We need to love on them and we need to communicate with them. This is not the calling that God has for you. And I just want you to know I'm proud of you, but I'm also going to watch and God's going to deal with you and God's going to bring you out of this and bring you into His will and communicate that to Him and encourage them. And then hit your knees and sick the Holy Ghost on them. I mean, He's, he's a little more powerful than you are. And He has ways of persuading. He has ways of getting it through to them. Amen? That's the role of us as parents. That's my greatest desire. I can echo what, what um, John said in 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.